Welcome to the Senya Happy Hour, where you get one hour of learning in less than 30 minutes. Hey everyone, today I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ann Helmus, a clinical neuropsychologist and executive director of NESCA, and you'll hear all about NESCA in our podcast. For the past five years, Dr. Helmus has also provided education and consultations in Asia. She specializes in providing comprehensive, holistic evaluations of children with learning, developmental, and emotional disorders, as well as strength-based evaluations for children who are typically developing. She obtained her doctorate degree from Boston University School of Medicine and her undergraduate degree from Brown University. Dr. Helmus has been a popular speaker at Senya events in the past, and she'll speak again at our upcoming virtual conference. I want to apologize in advance for some of the sound issues in today's podcast. As teachers, we're all experts on Zoom calls by now and understand that sometimes these issues occur. So have your fingers on your volume button and thank you so much in advance for your flexibility. Okay, that said, now on to the show. Dr. Ann Helmus, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as can be expected in the global pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I hear you there. <laughs> You've been a presenter at Senya conferences in the past. Where have you visited us? Was um, it Bangkok or? Uh, Kota Kinabalu was the oh. first one. Mm-hmm. And then in Bangkok was the second one. And then Great. I've spoken at some of the local Senya chapter meetings. And what's your general focus usually when you come and speak? Um, typically talking about assessments. So NESCA, is it NESCA or is it N-E-S-C-A? Um, it's NESCA, okay. um, which is a great acronym for Neuropsychological and Educational Services for Children and Adolescents. We were just talking about your husband being the sort of tech one. My ex-husband was very focused on, you want all the key words in there when people search. So that was <laughs> when NESCA was born. So if you search for neuropsych, for education, you know, it might hit NESCA. Um, and it is a multidisciplinary private group practice in the Boston area where we have three offices and um, with about 25 clinicians at this point. Wow. Right, a range of both diagnostic services and treatment services. Um, yeah, so we do neuropsych assessments, sort of psychoed assessments, um, emotional functioning assessments. And um, then we also have post-secondary transition planning specialists who um, work with, usually they start working with um, kids and families when the child is around 13 to start planning for what will happen after the, um, we have occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, um, personal trainer, nutritionist. So we've got a range of different services. Hmm. And do you service people only in the Boston area or can they be from anywhere in the States? Um, they can be from anywhere in the States. And in fact, um, also internationally, we have a lot of international clients, especially since I've started my work internationally and people are becoming more familiar with NESCA. Um, some people are coming here for services. And then we, we have people that come from all over the United States and, uh, and we do our best to try to accommodate travel schedules and get people in and do everything relatively quickly. That's great. And how did you start working internationally? Um, 
it's interesting. It had always been a dream of mine ever since I started my career. Um, I think because uh, after I finished my dissertation, I rewarded myself with six months of traveling around Southeast Asia and absolutely loved it. And I thought oh, it would be great if I could somehow combine my love for Asian culture with my work that I love. And, um, and I just sort of put that on the back burner as I was building my business, building my family. And then we started getting a lot of um, referrals of Asian families um, that were coming to Boston. And one of those families invited me about eight years ago to give a presentation in Manila about the um, evaluations that I do. And from that point on, a number of the families that saw the presentation asked if I would provide evaluations or consultations to their schools. And, um, and, my and so it began. That's really that. cool. That's great. When you work internationally, do you see major differences between uh, your work in Asia versus the United States? Um, I do. And it took a lot of getting used to. In fact, when I first started working there, I thought, I'm not sure how useful I can be because I was used to in the States when I would do an evaluation because we have special laws here. The, the public schools really have to try to provide services that the child needs. And so I was used to being able to go into schools and say, okay, we need this and we need that. And also in the Boston area, we've got every type of professional known to man. And so it was you know, very easy to write treatment plans for kids here. And then when I got to Asia, um, you know, there are no special ed laws and many of the kids were in private schools and a lot of the professionals that do things like speech language pathology or occupational therapy or psychotherapy, um, either there aren't any professionals in those fields, or if they are, they have waiting lists a year long, and so families can't easily access them. And so what I found is that um, when I started doing the work in Asia, I had to be a whole lot more creative than when I was doing the work here um, to figure out you know, how do we get this child's needs met? So for example, I evaluated one child in Manila and made the diagnosis of autism. The child was about three or four and um, the child really needed ABA, which wasn't available um, easily there. And so I got a um, board certified behavioral analyst to work with a teacher there. So the person in the States was writing the program and then watching through video monitoring and training the teacher to work with the child. And um, ultimately it all ended up working out really well, but you know, that type of creativity um, is very different than, than what I have to do here. And I think the other big difference in when I'm in Asia, I basically, have to do all types of evaluations because there's so few people available to do assessments. Whereas in the United States, for example, if a family has a young child that they think might be autistic, there's a lot of other people in my practice that would do a better job with that evaluation than I would because that's sort of their area of expertise. And so I would just say, oh, you actually don't want to see me, you want to see doctor, you know, some other doctor. Whereas when I'm in Asia, it's sort of like, I've got to see everything. Um, and so that was good. It sort of like kept me honest, made me dust off some skills I hadn't used in a while, like getting on the floor and doing play-based assessments with little kids that I hadn't done in 15 years. <laughs> right. Do you notice if there's um, a big language difficulty or how do you so deal I, with that? Um, so mostly the work that I've done has been focused in places where many people speak English. So Manila, Hong Kong, um, Bangkok, Singapore, um, 
it it would be very difficult, I think, if I had to work through an interpreter. You know, already there's cross-cultural issues and all kinds of things to deal with, but at least if, if they're fluent in English, then that makes a big difference. And what about working with the families? Um, yes, and are you asking, are there differences in working with the families? Yeah, yeah, uh, Some similarities, differences, what do you see? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, some of the families that I've dealt with, I feel are, are sort of global citizens, you know, they spent a lot of time traveling and um, they, they understand what's available in the United States and things like that. And so those families is more like working with families here. Um, they understand what an IEP is, things like that. Um, then, you know, there, there were a lot of families where I felt like that um, there was a lot more stigma around the, the child's issues than there would be in the United States, um, or at least in the Boston area. And, um, and so learning how to, um, to deal with that and present information in a way that was sort of culturally sensitive and um, you know, appropriate for them, but also trying to get the information across and trying to sort of destigmatize it. Um, and you know, I think trying to find out from families, what's your understanding of this? Where do you think it came from? And, um, that can sometimes help, but the, the stigmatization, I think, is probably one of the biggest uh, differences. Sure, yeah. And going back to what you said about the understanding of an IEP and what one even is, um, I remember um, many years ago working with a family overseas and explaining the IEP process to the parent. And afterward, the father said, okay, so if my son doesn't make this progress, you will give me all our money back, right? Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> we're at a private school and, you know, he just assumed that's, that's what it was. And I was like, well, it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah, I had a very eye-opening moment. I was speaking at the Senio conference actually in Bangkok. And um, the the topic of my talk was how to give feedback to parents and you know how to tell parents things that they may may not want to hear and i could tell that that all of these teachers sitting in the audience they had their arms folded across their chest i was like missing the mark in a big way and so i stopped my powerpoint presentation and i said all right help me out guys what <laughs> am i missing here and um and they said you know what you're missing is that in many cases, if we told parents that a child was misbehaving in school, that child might be severely punished. Mm -hmm. The parents would not view it as a parent-teacher partnership around, you know, what kind of a program can we put in place to help the child? It would be more like you were disrespecting your teacher, you weren't doing the right thing, you were being bad. And so a number of these teachers said, I've often been in the position where, you know, I, I don't tell parents what's going on with the child because I'm afraid that the child's going to get punished or, you know, even hurt which then made me say, okay, I have no answers for you. A lot of people participated with different ideas and, you know, and I think just for them to share experience was, was huge. Yeah. Me. So important. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that's why I love those conferences so much is just being able to chat with others in the field and what are you dealing with and how do you handle it in your situation? Um, because so often we feel so alone at our schools. And, you know, as a professional to have the opportunity to learn things like this, it just increases, you know, my, my sort of cultural competence, you know, like I'll never make that mistake again. <laughs> um, 
believe me, I'm going to make 20 other mistakes, but at least that one we've taken care of. Um, and, and I think that's been one of the things really exciting about doing the work in Asia is that each time I go, something happens that I learn from and I sort of keep increasing, you know, my understanding or I come up with a way to explain something that, that seems to get around the stigma or something like that. And so um, having done, having been a neuropsychologist for almost 30 years now, which is hard to Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, um, it's been nice, you know, the last eight years to have this sort of new challenge because, you know, when you've been doing the same thing as long as I've been doing, I sometimes feel like, wow, I can practically diagnose these kids in the waiting room. (laughs) And, uh, And so, so starting in Asia was like a whole new, it was like being a beginning neuropsychologist again, in a lot of ways, a whole new set of challenges. To, to sort of figure out how to navigate that landscape and work with the international schools and the parents and, mm-hmm. and even the cultural differences like between Manila and Hong Kong, let's say, which is, you know, a one hour flight, but two entirely different kinds of you know, society. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you primarily focus your work on assessment and diagnosis. You might have meant, mentioned this, but do you see differences in how evaluations are conducted in Asia as compared with the U.S.? Um, I do. So um, I think an important distinction is between the word evaluation and testing. And so hmm. for me, what an evaluation is, is it's gathering information from three sources, which would be the child's history, observations of me, the teacher, the parents, and testing, you know, actual tests that we administer to the kids. And that the way we evaluate what's going on with a child is that we synthesize information from all three of those sources and think about what that information means. Um, And that that's how we answer the referral question. And what I've seen in a lot of the evaluations that I've read um, in Asia is really an overemphasis on the testing part of that triangle. Um, and so even if the history is sort of recorded, it doesn't seem like it's taken into account or even if there are observations, which typically there aren't, but even if there are observations, again, they're not well integrated. So as an example of that, one of the early cases that I saw in Manila was a 12 year old child and the parents were extremely upset because they had had the child evaluated somewhere in Asia. and. Um, and around age 10, and the child was diagnosed with intellectual disability, which is sort of the new term for mental retardation. And the family was just devastated to get this diagnosis. Sure. Um, and, that, and they heard I was coming to Manila, so they wanted to work with me. So the first thing is that I looked at the child's history. The child was in one of the international schools in Manila. And I was thinking, okay, how have they made it, you know, to age right. 12 in international school if they have intellectual disability? That doesn't make sense. And then, you know, in doing the intake with the parents and I heard about all the activities that the child did and she was in scouts and all these things, I thought, okay, this isn't all fitting together. So um, I knew that something didn't make sense, that if this child was diagnosed with intellectual disability, she wouldn't be doing the things that she's doing. So they brought her in. And um, when I started doing the testing, when I gave the instructions for a number of these subtests, she just looked at me blankly. She didn't understand what I was asking her to do. And so when I broke down the instructions, you know, didn't take the standardized instructions, but I broke them down, I demonstrated, oh, now I understand what to do. And she, she did fine on the test. And so she does have a significant problem, which is a communication problem, a language processing problem, but she doesn't have intellectual disability. And, um, and you know, it's a good example of where, first of all, you can't just stick to the standardized instructions 
you know, I noted in the report that I did not stick to standardized instructions, she couldn't follow them and that that is diagnostic in and of itself. But um, it's a wrong diagnosis to say that because she scored below the second percentile in all these tests, she has an intellectual disability. She scored below the second percentile because she didn't do any of them because she didn't know what to do. Um, and so that was a good example of where, you know, the test results weren't really taken in the context of the child's history and the observations, you know, clearly in meeting this child, you know, right away, it was obvious that she didn't have an intellectual disability. Um, and, so. and look what you did for the, that family, you know, that, that must have uh, <laughs> made them feel so much better. Not that having a child with an intellectual disability is, is a bad thing, but they knew what she could do. And that test did not, or the, the evaluation, I guess, did not. Yeah. It didn't show what she could do, actually. Yeah, and exactly. And the difference between parents in the Boston area, at least, versus there is that if that happened here, parents would say, this evaluator has no idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. now, obviously, my child doesn't have an intellectual disability because we talk about stuff like this so much more openly. Um, you know, and there's all these parent groups and things like that. But for those parents, it's like, oh, a doctor said that my child has intellectual disability. This must be the diagnosis. And the same mm -hmm. way if I went to the doctor and they said you have high cholesterol. I mean, I have no reason to, you know, argue with that diagnosis. Right. I am yeah, I, I had a very similar experience with a student of mine in an international school at one time. And um, he had his assessments done in his home country, <clears throat> excuse me, because of his language. And they couldn't test him because his, of his behaviors. And mm -hmm. so his IQ score came out to be like 62 or something. And yet in my room, he was learning to read and write. And, you know, it, it was obvious his, his IQ was not that low. Yeah. So, but I, I didn't know where to go from there. Yeah. I had a similar situation. A family came actually from Indonesia. Um, to the States to get an evaluation because they'd come to visit grandma in the States and the grandmother was really concerned about her grandson's behavior. And so when this child came in, I thought probably this child has autism or maybe an intellectual disability based on their behavior. And then I started testing him and he was doing beautifully on all of these things. And I was trying to sort of put the pieces together and it turned out, I mean, he definitely had ADHD, but he didn't have all these other things that because he had ADHD, they put him in their one quote special class in the school in Indonesia. And most of the kids in the special class had intellectual disability and autism. And so this young boy who was of at least average intelligence, he just had ADHD. He was young. And so he just started taking on all these behaviors because this is what his classmates did all day. <laughs> and so he learned these behaviors and the school thought we're doing a great job because he has special needs and these other kids have special needs. So we put them all in one class. Right. And you know, obviously it was not, not a benefit for this child. Hmm. So switching gears a little bit, we've got all these travel restrictions due to the pandemic, of course. So will you be able to continue your work in Asia? Well, so I think one sort of silver lining of the pandemic is that it has forced all of us to learn how to do almost anything over Zoom. And, um, and so my occupational therapists and speech language um, therapists have figured out how to do therapy via Zoom, even things like feeding therapy and all that. And interestingly, I said to them, do you feel like you can be as effective over teletherapy as you are meeting with them in person? 
And they said, you know, in some ways, I think we're more effective because it forces the parents to be involved. Hmm. Whereas when they came to the office, the parents could sit in the waiting room, read their magazine, and we're working one-on-one with the child. Now the parent has to facilitate the session. So the parent is really understanding what I'm doing when I'm doing feeding therapy or how I'm working on speech or pragmatics or something like that. So, um, so that's been great. And um, we are, we have the capability to do evaluations um, you know, pr- probably 85% of what we would do in the office, we can do online. And so we've set up all of these services through telehealth. And, um, and in some ways, I feel like I can offer more services now because usually it was just me coming um, to Asia. And now my whole staff is available um, to families for, for anything from assessment to post-secondary transition planning to OT speech, executive functioning coaching, um, and, you know, consultation to schools around inclusion of kids with different types of special needs. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, so many years working in Asia, in China and in Bangkok, you know, families would just be stuck not being able to get their assessments done or, or the one place that gave them, you know, the, the cost was just so prohibitive that, the families couldn't afford it. And so it's so nice that there are options now for these families. Yeah, and that is another um, real advantage too, is because when I go to Asia, obviously there's a lot of overhead associated with going sure. halfway around the world. And so that is reflected in the cost of the evaluations. And here, you know, it's gonna be much lower cost for families because we're not flying and staying in hotels and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, finally, you're going to be presenting for us at our Senya conference. Can you give us a little um, peek into what you will be talking about? Yes, I, I want to expand on this um, theme that we started talking about, about what's the difference between testing and an evaluation. And um, hopefully that can help teachers, parents, um, evaluators to understand kind of what they should be looking for so they can read reports with more of a critical eye. And you know, see, does this does this make sense? You know, is is this truly an evaluation where they considered all of these factors and synthesized information, or did they simply administer and score tests and then, you know, reach a conclusion like the one that you shared of a child with behavioral problems saying, well, his IQ is 62. Um, you know, that's missing the boat. He may not have cognitive issues. It sounds like he had behavioral or attention issues that they didn't manage. Um, exactly. So yeah, so that's that's what I'd like to focus on. That'll be great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Helmus, for your time today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with everybody at Senya. Thanks for stopping in to our Senya Happy Hour. Don't forget to head over to senyainternational.org slash podcasts and check out our show notes from our discussion today. We at Senya hope you are enjoying these podcasts. There is so much to explore and we're at the very beginning, so feel free to drop us a note. And let us know what you'd like to hear more about during your next Senya Happy Hour. Until then, cheers!